The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are held. We are loved in the heart of the goddess. We are loved, we are loved, we are loved. What in your life needs to heal? Is it something in your body? Is it in your thoughts or your feelings? Welcome to the Empowered Healer Show with your host, Dr. Susan Allison. Our program will present healing methods and ideas to help you change the challenging parts of your life and support the people who mean the most to you. Now, here is Dr. Susan Allison. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Empowered Healer Show. And yes, this is Dr. Susan Allison, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today. I hope your week's going fantastically. And, you know, it is here in Central California as well. It's Indian summer with warm days, warmer than we had in July, in fact. It feels slower than summertime, though, and the air is softer somehow. It reminds me that nature is holding its breath for the winter days to come. So I'm slowing down, too, which is a relief since I tend to think too much and move too fast. I just went for a walk and kicked a few red and yellow leaves. I sat on a bench by the ocean and meditated. So I'm feeling quite peaceful right now, which is perfect for the show today. Remember the show with Rick Hansen, author of Buddha's Brain, and how much we all learned about how our brains are wired and how to rewire them for more happiness and peace? Well, Rick is joining us today to talk about his most recent book, which is called Just One Thing. Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. I love the simplicity of this book, how short the sections are and how we can each do a practice in a few minutes a day. So it's definitely doable, even for those of us who are A-type personalities, with 50 million things that we think that we need to do every day. So the book is divided into five parts. Excuse me. And has sections about being good to yourself, enjoying life, building strengths, engage the world, and being at peace. I have my favorites, and you will too, based on what it is that you need each day. So we'll share some passages on the show that you'll love, and I hope you will order the book to keep by your favorite chair. So you may remember that Rick Hansen has a doctorate in neuropsychology, and he's the founder of Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. He's also an affiliate of the Greater Good Science Center at Cal Berkeley. He's taught at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and at meditation centers worldwide. You may know Rick is the author of Buddha's Brain, which I already said, which has now been published in 20 languages. And you can contact Rick at www.rickhansen.net. Let's welcome Hansen. Hi, Rick. Hey, Susan Allison and Dr. Susan. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. 
Thank you. I am too. I'm happy you're here. So I'd like to start, uh, Rick, with the personal, which I always do. Uh huh. I don't think I asked you this last time, but you know, I would love to talk about your passion for neuroscience and contemplative wisdom. Uh. Which came first, <laughs> life, and how did you marry the two? Ah, uh. well, I started meditating in 1974. It was the spring uh, quarter of my last year at UCLA, and I had 12 units. I didn't know what to do with them, so I did 12 units of independent study on Eastern philosophy and religion for no reason. I was a completely conventional guy in a lot of ways before that. Uh, for me, it's one of those times in my life when I look back that I really wonder about the, you know, the hand of grace, if you will. So in any case, I, I began reading, you know, some of the classics, uh, like Three Pillars of Zen or, um, you know, Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy. And it be- it just seemed immediately true to me with the essence of what they were saying, which is that everything's connected to everything else and everything changes, and that we need to train the mind. We need to work with the mind. Otherwise, the mind controls us. So I began meditating. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I had long hair and gold rim glasses and a wood flute. I thought it would get me girls, but it didn't at all. But there I was, sitting on a hill, trying to be, you know, spiritual. But that was a decent beginning. you got to start somewhere. So that was the start for me. And along the way, you know, contemplative practice, broadly defined, yeah, my own background is mainly Buddhist, uh, but I've had some training in other areas and have some feeling for them, too. Uh, it's, if I do talk about uh, what Buddhism offers in terms of contemplative training or, or its model of the mind altogether, uh, it's not because I'm trying to push it, just because, but it's just what I know. Judge for yourself if it's of worth. Uh, the, all the world's religions, uh, and their secular traditions, their humanist traditions, and, of course, the shamanic traditions worldwide have a contemplative wing to them. Many people have found that if they, as you were saying just before the show, you know, settle down and kind of come to presence, come to peace, you know, with yourself, come to being here with yourself, um, it has lots and lots of benefits. So that's where it started. And then begin, I'd say really 25-ish years at least I've been interested in the brain because it just seemed clear that it was an amazing organ, very mysterious still to science 25 years ago. And yet, other than a transcendental X factor, the brain is, of course, the final common pathway for all the things flowing through us that construct moment to moment our experience of living. So if you had more knowledge about what was going on inside the black box, you know, as it were, the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut uh, right here between your ears. Well, if you had more understanding for it, you could do more with it, right? You could affect it so that uh, it then would affect you in better and better ways. And then in the last 10 years or so, with the explosion of knowledge about neuroscience, there's now enough knowledge on the table that it gives us practical tools. And that's my own focus. I'm a practicing clinician, a longtime psychologist, now neuropsychologist, as well as a management consultant, you know, a parent, a husband, and so forth. I'm in the trenches in the real world. I consume a ton of research, but I don't produce any. I'm very interested in boiling research down to its essentials, integrating it with other bits of research, and then translating it to practical methods that we can use. So to sum up, uh, for me, the intersection of profound ancient wisdom about the workings of the mind combined with the latest breakthroughs about what's going on in the brain uh, while those uh, things are happening in the mind gives us regular folks 
lots and lots of practices, and that's what my book, Just One Thing, is about. Lots and lots of practices. We can do a few minutes here and a few minutes there that will gradually change our brain for the better. And if you change your brain for the better, that means you're changing your life for the better, too. Mm-hmm. That's really, really true. So in terms of, could you define neuroscience mm-hmm. for people who don't, don't know what uh, you're talking about? Yeah. Neuroscience <laughs> basically is the study of the nervous system which is woven throughout the body, interacting with, of course, the other systems of the body, like the immune system or the cardiovascular system. And the headquarters of the nervous system is inside the brain. Um, The brain is the master organ of the body. It regulates all the other organs. And if you just think about it, if the body is in a crisis, like someone high on a mountain. I've done a fair amount of mountain climbing. And, mm-hmm. and you know, if you're high on the mountain or in some other situation where um, you're getting really, really cold, the body will pull blood away from the extremities. That's how we get frostbite mm-hmm. and keep the core of the body warm. And even then, if it has to, it will pull blood and other resources away from other organs and it will protect the brain at all costs. Because it's mm-hmm. when the brain goes, everything goes. If you think about it, the definition of the medical definition of, of death is brain death. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not heart death or kidney death or big toe death, right? It's brain death because that's really uh, the end of the story. Now, that said, of course, the brain interacts with the rest of the body, and the rest of the body matters too. That's why disciplines like yoga or good nutrition or exercise, things like that, um, feedback up into the brain and help us in lots and lots of good ways. But even though the brain, um, to I guess finish up here, even though the brain sounds sort of exotic and, you know, ooh, what's going on there, it's, you know, more and more understood, and maybe we'll get into some of the details of that. It's basically, it's, it's a big circuit, you know, or a mm-hmm. network. It's really a big network with lots yep. and lots of little cells that are communicating with each other. And in that giant network, there are, you know, changes continually happening, sort of ripples of nerval, nervous system activity through the network. And some of those ripples of change through the network leave lasting traces behind. And that's where the opportunity arises to mm-hmm. use the flows of thought and emotion and attention and desire to uh, make their underlying correlating neural activities actually build better neural structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I'm doing some of this background for people who, those of you who've missed the show that I did with Rick on his first book, Buddha's Brain. You can also listen to that show by just going on my host page, and it's archived, and you can listen to it. But I was thinking, Rick, maybe if you could give background about um, Buddha's Brain first in terms of um, talking about how we've been wired or programmed and how we n- are needing to rewire or how we can rewire the brain for greater happiness and peace. Oh, um, well, let me give you, if I could, a, a kind of silly example for starters. Sure. So, so the brain has different parts, and these different parts all work together in a way like the parts of a car. You know, a car is a whole car. That said, the carburetor is different from the transmission. I really hardly understand what either of those things do, but I, I know they're different. Okay, we need them both because when my carburetor doesn't work, the guy at the shop tells me I've got to spend a lot of money to get it fixed. Okay, I understand that. Well, in the brain, uh, one part of the brain is very involved in making new memories, especially visual memories. It's called the hippocampus, all right? And 
London taxicab drivers who have to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets there have a measurably thicker hippocampus at the end of their training than they had when they started their training. In other words, because they worked a part of the brain that does something, it got bigger as a result. And it gets bigger, kind of like a muscle gets bigger. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's new connections forming, these little connections, as you know, Susan, of course, called synapses. Um, New connections form. Um, Existing connections get stimulated. They get stronger. And uh, capillaries, little tiny, tiny, thin threads of blood vessels um, also reach out to busy regions, bringing them more supplies because they're working harder. All right. So that's one example. A different example is has was done in a different study with expert pianists who were given a piece of music that, in effect, let's say I forget the details, had them use the left little finger. All right, to play the piece. And then these expert piano players, experienced piano players, were divided into two groups. One group uh, played the piece for, let's say, 10 minutes a day for six weeks. At the end of that period, the part of their brain that controls the muscles of, let's say, the left little finger was also measurably thicker compared to what it was at the beginning of their training. Yeah. In other words, they worked that muscle. Well, interestingly, and this is very relevant, I think, to your to your program in your own work, the second group of piano players only imagined playing the piece of music Mm. for, let's say, 10 minutes a day for six weeks. And they, too, even though they didn't move a muscle, they just imagined playing the piece. They, too, exactly, had measurably thicker cortex in a part of the brain that did that particular function. Wonderful. In other words, yeah, imagine lived, you know, embodied living is going to have more impact generally than yeah. simply imagining something. But hey, uh, there's a lot of place for imagining things for better yes, there or is. worse. Yeah. And Rick, we're going to need to take a break, but hold that thought about mm-hmm. imagining. Imagining you're going to be right back yep. and enjoying the show with Rick Hansen. We'll be right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free at 866-268-2121. Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book, Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. 
Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. Being Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss Being Here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the 7th Wave Network. Be the change. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are held. You are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone, to the Empowered Healer Show. And I am Dr. Susan Allison, and I am here with Rick Hansen, who's author of Buddha's Brain and his newest book, Just One Thing, that we'll get into in just a moment. So before the break, uh, Rick, we were talking about rewiring our brain and improving it for greater happiness and so on. And so obviously we can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the examples I was giving were uh, related to driving a taxi, let's say, or play, playing the piano. Uh, other examples, uh, maybe more relevant to people listening here, are long-term meditators uh, build up parts of the brain that are involved in controlling attention, uh, tuning into yourself, being more empathic for others, and controlling negative emotional reactions. So there's evidence, in other words, that practice actually makes a difference, evidence in the body, physical material evidence. Fantastic. Well, I've been meditating for 36 years, so I feel good about that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, the Buddha and others did not need an MRI to become awakened, right? On the other <laughs> hand, I think there are ways in which, and maybe we'll get into the details now, um, mm-hmm. that doing different kinds of practices can really um, skillfully change your brain for the better, and thus your mind, and thus your life. Yep. So let's, let's get into that because the book we're focusing on today, if you just tuned in, is Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. So tell us about the book, Rick, your intention for the book, uh, and what it does for readers. Mm, great. Well, we're busy. Uh, we're flying around, right? I love the idea mm-hmm. of just, of, um, having uh, one thing to focus on. And then second, a thing that makes a difference. You know, we're surrounded with advice about different practices and different tools and use and everything in the range from, you know, psychology, new age, human potential, Eastern traditions, um, practical psychology, positive psychology, blah, blah. How do you know it works? So Mm -hmm. I got very interested in what has the most impact, both in my own experience and based on, you know, the research that is out there plausibly and pulled together the 52 most powerful practices I know. Um, I did 52 because it makes it easy if is some people who work with the book uh, are doing it. They use a different one each week, and they just kind of 
get through the year that way. And by the way, as a detail, if you go to my website, S-O-N, Rick Hansen, S-O-N.net, um, you'll see freely offered there tons of material, including these little videos that I've created uh, that are about one minute each. I call them just one minute uh, instead of just one thing. Anyway, just one minute. They're a little video in which I talk through each one of the practices in the book, and you can um, see those videos if you like, and it's all, as I say, completely free. Anyway, so the idea is that if you have little practices, you can do them, and you can actually make things better. I mean, I've been a therapist a long time. I think it's made me more compassionate. It's definitely made me tougher in the sense that I've just seen again and again and again that people will put a lot of effort into things they say don't matter much and will not put much effort into things they say actually matter a lot. And you got to earn it. In other words, if you don't do the work, you only have yourself to look to if you don't get the results. Mm-hmm. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, you can have confidence, whether you're a taxi cab driver or meditator or anybody working with, like, say, the practices in my book, you can have confidence that if you just bang away at it a few minutes a day, you will actually build muscle inside your brain and you will actually change your life for the better over time. Yeah, I, I, and I don't want to focus on the negative exactly, but mm-hmm. why is it, because I'm also a therapist, why is it that people don't do what they know would work? Mm. Um, I think it's for a lot of reasons. I think, one, people are just busy. They're distracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're tired. They're worn out. You know. Also, I think there's the force of habit. Uh, we, we do tend yeah. to just go down one direction. Yep. Beyond that, though, I do think there's some very interesting blocks. I think for a lot of people, deep down, there's a sense that they don't deserve it somehow. Yep. That because they, I don't know, took a cookie, stole a cookie when they were a kid or kicked a dog or something, that they're not, you know, they don't deserve to be happy now as an adult. And by the way, I'm not trying to trivialize kicking a dog, obviously. It's a lot worse than taking a cookie. Anyway, yep. Um, yep. So, uh, so I think there's that. I think also, too, there's sometimes gender gets in, in here. I've known women who think that, who feel deeply that their job is to make others happy and not mm-hmm. to worry about their own happiness. I've known men who focus on a kind of stoicism. Uh, there are those. Mm-hmm. Then you can get culture. Some cultures, you know, emphasize uh, not, uh, they, you know, they, they think it's vain or sinful to focus on your own well-being. So mm-hmm. whatever the reasons are, yeah. though, I think it's helpful to appreciate um, that if you fill up your own cup, as many studies have shown, and certainly practical common sense experience as well, you've got more to offer other people. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, there's a Buddhist koan or a Buddhist saying about, you know, you you fill and empty and fill and empty, empty and then fill. Mm. And I love that because I, I think you're absolutely right that many of us forget, you know, especially when we're in service-related professions or we're taking care of someone ill or whatever, that we forget to fill up our own cup and then suddenly it's empty and we're giving on empty and it's no wonder we're depleted and cranky and sometimes we get sick ourselves. Oh, yeah. It's really true. It's really yep. true. So let's talk about your book specifically, which I, and I really love it. And I think one of my favorite parts is the first part, which is be good to yourself since that's an mm. issue for me. Mm. And, you know, the very first uh, practice, practice one, you, you call it be for yourself. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that, to be mm-hmm. for yourself? Because, I, you know, I had to kind of look at it for a little bit before I kind of got that phrase. Yeah, it really means be a friend to yourself. Get on your own side. Uh, be for yourself rather than be against yourself or just neutral. Tilt toward yourself, much as you would tilt 
toward a friend in need. And the reason I put it up front is because you're right. That's the issue for a lot of people. You know the old line, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And for a lot of people, um, mobilizing motivation to care about their own suffering and to treat themselves like they matter and to stick up for themselves against other people who are pushing them around, that right there is a very critical first step because that's why I made it the first chapter. If you don't have that one in place, if you're not on your own side, that doesn't mean against others, but it means that you're for yourself. If you're not on your own side, as Rabbi Hillel said or wrote a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. you know, who will be? And if you're not on your own side now, when will be? When will you be? So for me, that's really, really fundamental. And it goes against, it speaks to the difficulty a lot of people have if, with things like self-compassion yep. or self-kindness, yeah, yes. or being fair to themselves. You know, if you, in an idea that's I'm sure familiar to you, you know, the psyche is in a sense has three parts to it. Uh, there's the kind of inner being, sometimes a sense of an inner child. Then there's the nurturing parts of the psyche and then the critical, punishing, scolding, blaming parts of the psyche. And for many people, that inner being, if you will, an inner child is kind of, you know, small and the inner critic is this giant who's just yep. screaming at the inner yep. kid. And then the so-called nurturer, protector is this sort of weakling over in a corner wringing her hands. And that's not good. You know no, what I mean? No, it's not. We need no, to like not. tell the critic to calm down, you know, yep. you know, take a happy pill or something. And especially we need to build up that inner nurture or that inner protector. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. In fact, I've been working on that with clients. Um, I have a, I had a group, in fact, where we were working on actually uh, creating a little knob in the head where you turn the voice mm-hmm. down. And you, you call it the, the inner critic, but it's also, yeah. I call it, you know, the ego voice. Turn yeah. that voice down and turn the voice of the higher self up. Or yeah. the inner nurturer up, you turn that voice, make that knob loud, turn it loud, yeah. and um, really listen to that nurture um, instead of that inner critic, which can be so loud uh, in many of us. Right on. Absolutely fantastically true. Yeah, and I love in that same uh, part, for those of you who are going to buy the book, this is in the first part, it's page 14, is to have people see themselves as a child. Mm. And I love that, that you put that, because that's when there'll be tears, people start, you know, kind of crying. They see themselves as this child, and then they, the compassion wells up, and the feelings yeah. of nurturing uh, can come in. Yeah, I did that for for two reasons, and that, in a sense, illustrates the 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 whatever the something the madness behind my method or the method behind my madness um on the one hand it makes psychological sense to see yourself as a child because we know that um you know that tends to soften the heart the other thing though neurologically based on evolution um we have humans have an extremely strong impulse to care for children even the children of others and yes in extreme cases people can do terrible things to the children of other people, and or if not their own children. But generally speaking, there's a very powerful impulse in us to take care of other kids, other other children, especially really little kids, infants, yep. toddlers, and preschoolers. So both of those 
uh, motivated me to do that. And I think I might have mentioned there something that a friend of mine does. She carries around a picture of herself as a cute little girl right next to the picture of her uh, mm-hmm. driver's license. Mm-hmm. So whenever she has to show ID or she's opening her, her wallet in her purse uh, to get out a credit card or something, she sees this picture of herself as this adorable little girl, which always warms her heart and leads her to treat herself nicely. I love that. Yeah, you did put it in there. It's mm-hmm. it's right there in that section. Um, yeah. And then we'll have, we almost need to take a break in a second, but mm-hmm. I wanted to start on, uh, taking in the good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in this kind of, you, you talk about the brain a bit in that section because there's a reason why it's hard for us to take in the good, right? Yes. Oh, and well then briefly here, you know, my phrase on that, which is now increasingly well known, is that the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Mm. And the basic idea of that is that as we evolved, you know, we had to get carrots and we had to avoid sticks, okay? In other words, we had to get rewards and we had to avoid harms and threats. But if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at a carrot tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid that stick today, whap. No more carrots forever. So there are many examples of the negativity bias, which is what it's called in the brain today. One of the classics is that a good long-term relationship needs at least a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions. In effect, one negative interaction is you know, more powerful than five positive ones. Uh, it's like typical. You know, you're in a relationship with someone, 20 things happen in a day. What's the one you think about before you're falling asleep? It's that irritating little moment. Um, So that's an example of the negativity bias. Another is that the brain fast-tracks negative experiences immediately into emotional memory. Once burned, twice shy. But but positive experiences have standard-issue memory systems, which means usually that they have to be held in awareness 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row to have a chance of transferring from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. But how often do we actually do that? We're usually having, you know, mildly positive or neutral experiences, most people, most moments, and most days, uh, with, of course, some tragic exceptions. But the point, problem is we're typically not staying with that positive experience for more than a few seconds at a time, which yep. means that it doesn't have time to transfer into emotional storage, into emotional memory. So from the standpoint of building neural structure, it's wasted on us, which is true, unfortunately, For a lot of results in psychotherapy, in yoga, in life, in coaching, in spiritual practice, we we enter, we we activate, we attain, if you will, useful, powerful, um, positive states of mind, but they have no lasting benefit because of the the negativity bias of the brain. So those methods that I teach in the book, and I'm also creating a course on taking in the good, and it's also what my next book's about. But anyway, um, these methods will gradually sensitize the brain so it gets better and better at registering positive experiences and converting them to neural structure, turning positive mental states into positive neural traits. Uh, in, In effect, to finish up, making the brain increasingly like Velcro, for positive experiences. Awesome. That's, really that's, what, that's what we want. We want to be attracting the positive and holding on to it. Yeah. So we, we need to take a break. We'll be Great. right back with Rick Hansen. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. 
You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free at 866-268-2121. Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book, Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. What are the benefits to combining modern science with ancient healing practices? For the answers, you'll want to tune into Frame of Mind with your host, Terry Sue. Each week, our program focuses on ways to live more holistically. By developing new ways of looking at our world, we can find ways to foster harmony and peace for the good of mankind and our planet. If we learn to live and think healthier, we begin to explore and focus on our strengths. Tune into Frame of Mind, Saturdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on 7th Wave Network. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are held. You are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone, and I'm here with Rick Hansen, and we're talking about his latest book, Just One Thing. It's a great discussion, as usual, and I have so much to talk about, and I we don't have that much time, so I'm going to zoom in to some things in the book that were my favorites. So we live in a really fast-paced time. People are constantly talking about this to me. Things seem to be amping up even more. So, Rick, why is being chronically speedy bad for us, and mm-hmm. how the heck can we slow down? Yeah. Uh, well, let's do a little experiment right now, and the people listening can do it too. Imagine that we were all living, um, you live in the Santa Cruz area, right? Imagine yeah. that we were living there 4,000 years ago. Uh, Native peoples did. They lived well. They were adapted to the land. You know, they had a life. Uh, um, they treated their children well. Uh, they had a spiritual life. Imagine a typical week. Well, first of all, we'd wake up when the sun rose. Uh, and by the time and when the sun set, we would chill out. We could make a fire. We'd hang out. But after dark, there wasn't much to do. So we'd sit around. We'd talk with each other. We'd cook. We'd take care of our kids. We'd pray perhaps, go off in the corner, make love, who knows, pretty mellow. And then we'd wake up the next morning and do it all over again. If we moved, we would do it at the pace of a walk. Uh, Our life altogether was in rhythm with the seasons. Uh, Our life was pretty familiar to us. Uh, You know, we knew what the hills were, where we hunted or where the beach was, that we went out and, and found mollusks or fish or things like that. It was, uh, it, it, it functioned at a certain pace. 
And then suddenly fast forward us in a time machine to this current lifestyle where we're continually jabbered at by media, multitasking, cell phones, uh, texts, emails, doorbells ringing, you know, political ads bombarding us, you know, people trying to sell us stuff left, right, and center. Um, That's life today. It's absolutely abnormal. Yes, we can handle it from time to time. And yes, you know, I'm a big fan of painkillers and refrigeration, and I'm fond of ESPN, and I love the Internet. But um, a lot of our living is absolutely abnormal in terms of how the body evolved, and it's changed rapidly over a very, very short period of time. So to me, it's that kind of perspective that helps me appreciate, and maybe others as well, why it's important to try to slow down, including the fact that when we speed up, that activates the same same stress machinery that evolved to keep our ancestors away from charging lions. So there are a lot of little ways to slow down, and as you've probably noticed, I talk quickly, and I to zoom around because I've got a lot on my plate and a lot of things I want to do. But one thing that I I try to do a lot is, you know, um, definitely a few times an hour, if not every few minutes, I just pause for the duration of an exhalation, you know, seven, eight seconds. Pause. I use natural opportunities like um, getting a glass of water or using the bathroom or stepping outside to just Whoosh. And, you know, if we get this moment of recovery, uh, that makes a lot, a lot of difference because we evolved uh, to handle uh, short, brief bursts of stress that were typically followed by a long recovery period. The problem with modern life is that we're jacked up and then we stay jacked up throughout the course of the day. We don't come back down and capture that, you know, the healing and refueling. Um, that's available to us in the recovery. So that's where the, these little moments, they sound trivial, but they actually reach into something that's very deep and very important in our overall kind of psychobiology, if you will. That's one thing. A second thing I do, and um, I'm a major fan of women. Uh, probably the bulk of people listening to your show are women because they tend to be most interested in mental health. I don't know what the guys are thinking, but oh well. Uh, <laughs> that said, um, I think a lot of women get socialized to feel that they always sort of have to hop to it in terms of other people's needs or demands. And, um, you know, my point of view is, to really not presume that another person's need is your obligation. And that's radical thinking, you know, for some people, perhaps particularly women. But to really help yourself appreciate almost like a kind of buffer or shock absorber between you and other people. They come at you with their need, you know, their urgency. Mom! You know, or I'll say to my wife, hey, where did I put my keys? And, you know... So what? Just because that person has that desire or want directed at you doesn't necessarily mean that you have to jump through their hoops. And that can make a big difference as well for people in terms of slowing down, to not feel so pushed around by the demands of other people. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, so um, those of you not familiar with Rick's book, 
it's in sections and we were talking about one about slowing down, but there's another one that says take more breaks, yeah. even a minute. And I love that section. You know, it's sort of, it sort of, uh, dovetails from where we were just talking about, but it's about, you know, giving yourself permission, you say here and, and taking little micro breaks and, uh, you know, which is about putting yourself first, the way you were speaking to the women in, in the listening audience, putting yourself first, taking the break, know you deserve it. Uh, you know, go on a mental holiday, you say, I don't know if you want to say any more about that. No, that you're, you're doing it for me. Thank you. I love it. I love that section. Um, so, yeah, slowing down. And, you know, what's the, you know, you also have a section on nourishing our brain. So does the slowing down and the taking breaks actually help our brain? Oh, well, for one thing, stress is really bad for the brain. Okay. Chronic stress uh, or acute intense stress, either one. Intense uh, acute stress like trauma or the mild to moderate but chronic stress that's the daily lot in life for most people. Uh, it's interesting. My very first book, by the way, was on taking good care of mothers over the long haul because they deserve it. And second, because that's an incredibly highly leveraged investment in the next generation. And you want to change the world in a generation? Make the number one public policy worldwide taking really good care of mothers. Right mm-hmm. there. We would change the planet in a generation. Well, anyway, one of the things that I found when I delved into the research on this is that being a, being a mom, particularly in a more stay-at-home structure, you know, where the unfortunately village these days that it, supposedly it takes to raise a child is more like a ghost town. Well, being a mom, um, and this would apply to men if they're the primary caregiver, is much more stressful than most jobs. I mean, you have to be mm-hmm. doing a job like being, you know, a cop in the inner city or, you know, being a Navy SEAL in Afghanistan or something like that to approximate the stress level of being a primary caregiver of young children in particular. Yep. So really appreciating the impact of chronic stress uh, as well as appreciating how much chronic stress is present in most people's lives is very motivating because you realize that if you don't slow down, you're exposing yourself to the very negative long-term um, impacts of chronic stress on your own brain. That's mm-hmm. one thing I'll say. Second thing I'll say, uh, in terms of uh, directly feeding the brain, try to have protein at every meal. I know so many people, and frankly, most of them are women, who do not have much protein. They'll mm-hmm. make their kids or their friend, whatever, they'll give their cat or dog a high-protein meal. They won't eat protein themselves. Yep. And if you're a vegetarian, I've been a serious vegetarian a couple times in my life. I have a lot of respect for that stance, particularly from a moral perspective. Um, you know, if you, there, there are many ways to get protein, uh, besides, you know, meat sources, let's say. Uh, anyway, long story short, uh, protein's really important. The other one, of course, is essential fatty acids. About 60% of the dry weight of the brain is essential fatty acids. So it's important to get them into your brain one way or another. And if you eat enough fish these days to get all the essential fatty acids your brain needs, you probably get mercury poisoning. So, I know you it. know, it's important to find another source. Another source for the EFA. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just reading about the paleo diet, in fact, and yeah. it's it's too heavy on meat for me. Yeah. Um, but I still, I need protein at every meal. And I think that, I also like that book, Eat Right for Your Type. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a O positive, you know, I'm the hunter-gatherer. And yeah. I just really have to have protein three times a day at least in oh, order yeah. to, to feel like my brain is functioning at all. Mm-hmm. Very so good. Yep, really true. So, I'm going to skip ahead, and I'll have to uh, cut you off in a second just for a break. Mm-hmm. But 
I really like the chapters you have. One's called Respond, Don't React. Mm-hmm. And one is called Don't Take It Personally. Mm-hmm. Because I find that, that most of us uh, are doing both of those and mm-hmm. not, not in the positive way. Yeah. Well, those are huge subjects. I'll do it super fast. Uh, respond, don't react refers to basically two settings the brain has. I think of it as the green setting and the, or the red setting. The natural home base of the brain, in which we're still engaged with life, is on the basis of experiencing that our, that our basic needs are met. And so uh, we uh, are not being threatened, we're not being frustrated, and we're not being rejected. All right. The brain then defaults to this really good place, body-mind altogether, where we repair and refuel ourselves. And in the mind, in three fundamental words, we're in a state of basic peacefulness, happiness, and love. That's our home base. That's the good news. The bad news, if you will, is that for survival purposes, Mother Nature also evolved a second setting of the brain. It's reactive mode. The home base is the responsive mode of the brain. The reactive mode lights up when we go into fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. And then long-term building projects are put on hold. The body burns more resources than it's consuming. And in terms of the mind, our experience, using three traditional words, the brain, uh, uh, the mind is filled with states of hatred, greed, and heartache, right? Mm-hmm. Those of you that know Buddhism at all can probably track what I'm doing. Yep. I'm trying to imagine what is the biological, neuropsychological substrate of a brain, a mind without craving where there's no basis for the craving that leads to suffering and harm. That's the responsive mode of the brain. And the craving brain is characterized by hatred, greed, and heartache. Okay, so to go through life on the responsive basis does two good things. One, it does good stuff in the moment because instead of being, you know, fearful and angry, we're basically peaceful, confident, and strong. Instead of being frustrated, disappointed, uh, and awash in sadness, we have a basic sense of fullness, gratitude, gladness, enoughness, and contentment. Instead of feeling rejected, ashamed, devalued, voted off the island, we feel loving, kind, compassionate, um, and caring. Those are good things, right? But additionally, since neurons that fire together wire together, since your mind is constantly building structure in your brain, every minute you clock in the green zone, the responsive mode of the brain, every minute you spend coming home to your true self, your true nature, well, that builds up neural structure. That strengthens yes. the responsive mode of the brain. Yeah, wonderful. You did that so well, and uh, we do need to take a break, and we'll be right back with Rick Hansen. Great. Thanks. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Is there a difference between dream work and intuition? The relationship is closer than you think. These are mutually supportive concepts. When you dream, your intuition serves as a foreshadow of the future and can bring rapid results through dream analysis. Tune in to The Partnership of Intuition and Dreams with your host, Dr. Marcia Emery. Explore this unique relationship and learn to understand how the symbolism of dreams can be clarified. Listen every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free 
at 866-268-2121. Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book, Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone, the Empowered Healer Show, and I'm here with Rick Hansen, and we're talking about his book, Just One Thing, and it's many things, actually, but one practice at a time, so I love the book, and Rick, please tell people how they can get your book, and also, again, how they can contact you. Oh, my pleasure. Well, the book's available everywhere, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, as well as your local bookseller, so however you want to get it, fine, it's everywhere. Uh, and then with regard to my own website, it's rickhanson.net, and the website is chock full of freely offered resources, talks I've given, uh, articles, slide sets from workshops I've done for therapists in Buddhist settings, for regular folks. Uh, everybody's a regular folk in a deep way, but anyway, um, so there's that. And then also I've got a lot of uh, information on the site if you're interested in this territory, you know, where ancient wisdom comes together with modern neuropsychology. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and you'll love the book. I, I don't say this about all the books that I read, and I read a lot for uh, all the guests I have. So uh, I really love this book because it's very practical. It's something that we can actually do. And I don't say that about all of them. Some of them I don't feel are practical in terms of, of our lives and our lifestyle. So I wanted to, to jump to something that is at the very end of your book, and if we have time, I'll go back and pick up some other pieces, but I definitely want to get this in. At the very, very end of your book, you say, if you choose just one thing from this book of practices, let it be love. And, and I'd love you to talk about that. Wow, thank you. You know, and, uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I just recently gave a talk about how, you know, I was exploring the Buddhist teaching, for example, that love is a fully sufficient, powerful path to awakening. And if you look at the great traditions around the world, and also you look at the secular or humanist traditions, there's always an emphasis on love from the great teachers. And why is that? And it's I think it's for a variety of reasons. One is that love has this amazing ability to feed us even as we're giving it away. How many things do that? 
In other words, love is love, whether it's flowing in or flowing out. Either way, it continually feeds us. Love also embodies a profound teaching of connection. We truly are interdependently arising and passing away, moment after moment after moment. And the experience of love brings that powerfully home. Another thing that love does is it lets us see the beauty. It helps us see the beauty in other people. Whether you frame that as Buddha nature, if you will, or the divine light within every person, or simply that they're just a a beautiful, good person, love helps us see that. Even people who are aggravating, whose politics we don't like, let's say, or who have treated us badly or cut, cut us off on the freeway, behind the mask of the face, way back there, behind the eyes, we can see a beautiful being inside everyone, a being that doesn't want to suffer, that longs for true happiness, that wants things to be better. We can see that in other people, and love helps us do that. Love also helps us recognize our own good nature. You know, I think one of the last taboos is to face the fact that I am actually a good person, to own it, that, yes, indeed, you too are a good person deep down inside. And love helps us appreciate that our nature is love. I think a lot of people, uh, me included at times, are afraid of just giving over to our profoundly loving nature because there's a recognition that it would kind of blow us wide open and it would blow the ego apart in some ways to give over to this when you really open to it. It feels like a fire hose blowing through you of love. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I love what you say in that chapter. You say, um, strengthen your loving feelings with soft thoughts toward others. You know, I've been doing this for a while now. You know, you say, saying this to people in your mind or whatever, I wish you well. May you not be in pain. May you be at peace. May you live with ease. And there's a lot of homeless people here in Santa Cruz. And I lately, mostly like in the last few weeks, I find myself just sending them these loving feelings and, mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, seeing people suffering and just feeling such compassion and empathy for everyone, yeah. you know, and, and isn't that the goal is to, is to feel this, this deep love inside us, not just for, for our nuclear family, but for everyone on the planet. Mm. Yes, that's totally true. I mean, love takes us out to this huge circle. I mean, Love's really important today for another reason, which is that as we evolved in small bands, breeding mainly inside the band, you know, these are bands 35 to 70 or so people, um, you know, it uh, really worked to be loving and cooperative toward us, and alas, it really worked to be um, fearful and aggressive toward them. And we're very vulnerable as soon as we start regarding others as them to devaluing them and oppressing and exploiting them. Um, and that's the basis of terrible things that have happened in history. So these days, though, we've got 7 billion people jammed together side by side on a leaky lifeboat, planet Earth, you know. And we have these ancient tendencies to really fear and attack those who are not us. So therefore, one way you can really help yourself is continually look for the ways that those others, those thems are us. Absolutely, and that there's similarities, and the ego does that. The ego separates, mm-hmm. you know, it divides, keeps us apart, it, it makes us feel alone. And so we need, you know, that's that conscious evolution piece. We're evolving as, as humans, as spiritual humans, and um, I see this as, you know, our destiny uh, starting this year uh, from now on. This is what we're, we're birthing. So 
Thank you so much, Rick, for being here. It's a Thank pleasure you. as always. Oh, it's great. It's totally my pleasure. And Susan, you're great. It's really neat, and I wish everyone who's listening the best. Thank you. And thank all of you, all of my listeners, for being here today. And I appreciate you all so much. Next week is an amazing rebroadcast of my interview with transformational leader Jack Canfield. So if you missed that uh, broadcast or you want to hear it again, uh, it'll be next Thursday. Until then, this is Dr. Susan Allison wishing you a joy-filled life, one practice at a time. Thank you again for listening to The Empowered Healer Show. Please join your host, Dr. Susan Allison, again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Until then, have an empowering and fulfilling week. We are happy.